0: I'm Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today, my guest Aaron Schellenberger and I are tackling a second scholarly objection of Bart Ehrman against the resurrection of Jesus. We're taking a deep dive into the historian's use of probability to establish whether a particular event happened or not. Are miracles by definition improbable? Does the rarity of miracles preclude the historian from talking about them? These are important questions within the field of history, especially with reference to the resurrection of Jesus. Like last week, Schellenberger will guide us through his master's thesis to deal with this issue. Here now is episode 445, Resurrection Objection Part 2, Improbable Miracles with Aaron Schellenberger. (laughs) Welcome back, Aaron Schellenberger, to Restitutio. So glad to have another opportunity to chat with you today about your fascinating research on the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus.
1: Glad to be here, Sean. Thank you for having me again.
0: Yeah, yeah. So glad you uh, were available, and I really appreciate your time. Last time, we sort of ended talking about Scripture and that was our main topic was Erman's case against the gospels being reliable and you made a nice argument a very yep. uh, compelling case for the general reliability and you know our, our the listener needs to be aware that uh, your strategy here and it's a tried and true tested uh, in many debate strategy is not to build a case for everything you're just trying to do the minimum in order to make right. a case for the resurrection. And I think people might get a little confused about what it is, where it is you're coming from. You're not trying to attack Scripture. Uh, you're trying to establish it just enough so that we can get to talking about the evidence for the resurrection from Scripture itself. And uh, so, I, I don't did you want to clarify anything on that before we move on?
1: Yeah, I didn't want our viewers to get the impression that I have a low view of scripture Uh, as a matter of fact uh, I have a high view (laughs) of scripture I just don't consider myself an inerrantist Uh, I just happen to think that there are some minor errors uh, what I regard as errors in good faith which are completely inconsequential to the historical veracity of the Bible and especially to the resurrection of Jesus and other essential teachings of the Bible pertaining to salvation and Christian living, I, I would classify myself I, uh, as a high reliabilist <laughs> because I find the Bible to be highly reliable, and hence, you know, not to mention the Gospels are highly reliable. You know, they're not just general reliable; they're highly reliable. You know. So,
0: but in our last conversation, your angle was simply to establish general reliability right not because that's all you believe but because right. that's the minimum required in order to use the evidence there to build a case
1: yes i even went more modest than that to to even grant what airman is saying that the gospels are generally unliable hence uh the objection that he raises is because of the general unreliability of the Gospels, the resurrection cannot be established as a historical event. I'm even granting that. I'm going way beyond. But in my view, even then, we can still establish the resurrection as a historical event, provided that we don't leave out God in the picture. You know, I I always emphasize this. Just because we have all these minimal facts, it's, it's a done deal. No, it's not. You have to factor God in you know, and the religious context of Jesus' life. So let's not forget that. I'll leave it at that, and we can move on to the intrinsic improbability of miracles, Uh yeah.
0: Yeah, that'd be great. This second objection that Ehrman raises is of particular interest, because if miracles are just so improbable, then, is, makes it a lot harder to build a case for a miracle. And so maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how does he build his case for the improbability of miracles and how does that all work from his perspective? And then we can get into your response and how you overcome that objection.
1: Yeah, so the second sag- ob- objection that Ehrman raises states that number one, miracles by their very nature are least probable events. Number two, historians can only establish what is probable. And number three, that because of that one and two, historians cannot establish miracles as probable events. Because how is it that historians who are only able to establish what is probable can possibly establish least probable events like a miracle of the resurrection of Jesus? So in all of those wordings (laughs) wordings <laughs> that I just put out, there are three questions that come to mind. Uh, uh, three major questions. One is what are miracles? What do historians do as professional historians? And what what then exactly is Ehrman's objection? Well, I've just articulated it, but at this point I'm going to try to unpack it. So to begin with, when we discuss miracles, the discussion can go in many different directions. And for the purpose of my thesis, I make a distinction between a definition of miracles and identification of miracles, definition and identification. So how do we define miracles? That's a good question. And then how do we identify? Those are two different topics right there. Uh, let's, people tend to confuse those two. So in my thesis, I aim to try to clarify, you know, the difference.
0: Well, I mean, a lot of people would even just say the birth of a baby is a miracle or being alive is a miracle, but I don't think that's what you're talking about here. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So what qualifies as a miracle? Is it just a coincidence? Does that qualify as a miracle? I mean, what is a miracle in your estimation?
1: When we try to define miracles, we look at the Bible because the Bible is the one that teaches the The resurrection of jesus which is a miracle i define miracles as occurrences that take place on earth that can only be performed by god that only god can perform miracles are a temporary and rare divine intervention in the way nature regularly operates now Uh, Within the worldview of theism, God is the creator and sustainer of the natural world. God had set things in motion, you know, things like gravity. There is that law of nature gravity, and it's a regularity, okay? It's called the law of nature or the natural law. Earth's gravity, uh, when you drop a physical object, the ground is going to pull it because of the gravity, right? now. If God makes gravity ineffectual, you drop the, You drop an object; it just floats. It doesn't hit the ground. Well, that's a miracle. It's as simple as that. You know, let's not make it complicated. <laughs> okay, so you have the regularity of nature, natural law, such as gravity. That's just the way God put things together. Okay, now that, that this is within the worldview of theism. So if God makes gravity ineffectual and you drop a physical object, the object does not get pulled to the ground by the gravity. That is a miracle. The next question is how do we identify a miracle? How do we know that it's really God that did it? Right. Looking at the resurrection, a man, Jesus of Nazareth, was put to death via a Roman crucifixion, and then a few days uh, later, this dead man was raised by God physically back to life. Uh, we know that dead men stay dead. Yeah, they, they don't become alive again. A truly dead man, truly dead people, they don't become alive just like that. We, we know this from the way nature regularly operates, but... Since God exists and He can and did Jesus uh, did raise Jesus back to life, such an event is a miracle. It is a temporary and extremely rare event that only God can perform by intervening within the law of nature. So, going back to my uh, other question, how do we identify that the that the resurrection of Jesus is is a miracle? Well, number one, the resurrection of Jesus took place within a context of religious significance. The life of Jesus is replete with religious significance. He claimed to be God's human Messiah. He claimed to be God's agent in ushering God's people into God's kingdom. Uh, He had a ministry of reconciliation to God, healing miracles, uh, nature, miracles, and exorcisms. And he claims to be God's final revelation. And we can also make the argument that uh, Jesus even predicted his own death and resurrection. So all of those put together. And then we look at the Old Testament, you know, talking about the coming Messiah, Jesus' life and the Old Testament, put them all together. That's how we identify that what happened to Jesus was a miracle. I'm going to pause right there and let you ask questions.
0: Well... um... To start with, your definition of a miracle is that it's something that God did that is rare. A lot of times I used to think of miracles as a suspension of natural law, but uh, over time I've come to conclude it more as an intervention. Right. So that uh, God is doing, in your analogy of dropping something and gravity pulling it, God is doing something to hold it up, whether that's forming an anti-gravity field around the object or somehow doing something to the molecules to reduce their density or whatever. I don't know. But <laughs> he's doing yeah. something that is not like turning gravity off but like changing the fact. I mean, I can yes. i can counteract gravity very easily. I just lift an object up with my hand and, wow, look at that. I counteracted gravity. So it's not... Yeah. It's not necessarily all that strange of an idea yeah. when a human or another agent does it, but when God does it, we define it as a miracle.
1: Yes, that's a good point. Uh, I don't even call a miracle a violation of the laws of nature because what is there to violate as though it's some kind of you know, immorality that some agent out there is committing? God, who is the creator of all things, he's the sustainer of all things, can, in fact, do whatever he wants in principle with what he created. It's just an intervention. It's extremely rare and it's temporary. And there is a reason for that. And I can get into that later. I will get into that later when we get into the third objection. Could it be that the reason why God used the resurrection of Jesus, because it's a miracle. He's trying to get our attention. Hey, this is me speaking and listen to me. Listen to my son
0: resurrection too given the context the second temple jewish context it's just loaded with so much significance theological
1: significance yes 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 historical
0: significance and it is a rather weird occurrence most other civilizations mm. wouldn't even wish to have their body back right you know they're they're just imagining some other kind of afterlife a disembodied yeah. afterlife of some sort getting your body back is uh, i don't know if you ever heard of celsus the anti-christian who wrote uh the true logos uh countering against mm. a christian idea he was writing in the second century and origin wrote a book against celsus in the third yeah. century and celsus talks about the resurrection as being a hope fit for worms you know like why Only worms would want flesh back again, you know, because they like to eat it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And,
0: uh, you know, just like the ridicule of it. And so I think because it is weird uh, from the perspective of most civilizations and most different religions, uh, that almost brings like a more ring of authenticity to it. Yes. As being the way God chose to indicate this and vindicate this one as his anointed.
1: Yeah, it's a huge attention-getter.
0: It's a huge attention-getter for sure. And yeah. it's also something that fits very nicely in with some of these prophecies that we see in the Hebrew Bible, like Daniel 12.2 or Ezekiel yeah. 37 or uh, some of the oracles in Isaiah 25 or 26. And other hints and foreshadowings of this being a pattern or a desire to live on a renewed world rather than uh, to be, I don't know, transhumanized into some sort of other (laughs) non-physical plane. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, I, I really think there is, like when you really get into the mindset of it, there's a lot of logic to why this as the miracle that God chose for proving that Jesus is his anointed one, his agent, his super prophet, the Son of God. So where where should we go from here as far as this whole business of improbability? I mean, you're just granting that, right? You're saying it's very rare. Well, Erwin's going to say, well, if it's very rare, then we shouldn't even talk about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in my thesis, I uh, aim to show that Ehrman is confusing rarity slash frequency with probability he even grants that the mirror my- uh, that the resurrection happened you know he's not even arguing against you know that, that it actually took place but airman is confusing rarity slash frequency with probability just because an event like the resurrection is extremely rare like one in how many it happened one time and how many billions and billions of human beings? Just because it's rare doesn't mean it's unlikely. Does that make sense?
0: I would say along the lines of that that any historical event is unlikely, right? It's <laughs> well
1: in the in terms of infrequent or rare rarity.
0: Yeah, I guess I guess not. Like so, let's say it's a thousand years from now. You're looking back on on my life, and you know I yep. got up. And kissed my wife goodbye and I went to work. That's not that's not a rare event historically. But uh there are lots of rare events in history. Right? So like uh the, the classic uh, uh event of Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon. You know, what was the probability of that event? What was the the rareness factor?
1: <laughs> it's extremely rare. It's so infrequent. Bart Ehrman is uh isn't confusing the two so yeah uh we we can go back to that to this later let me go ahead and talk about what historians do they they try to establish what probably happened in the past you know professional historians do that they do not have a say uh anything on theological matters they do not say they, they do not have a say on theological matters i'm sorry and uh, so that's not their department. Their department is to look at evidence. They try to establish what probably happened based on the available evidence. And uh, it's not their job to assess theological claims like the, you know, the idea that God raised Jesus from the dead. And so what then is Ehrman's objection? Well, since miracles are least probable events, historians try to establish what is probable, it follows necessarily that historians cannot establish miracles. So it seems that intuitively it makes sense, right? And a lot of people buy into this too, and they're like, "Woof, that makes sense, you know?
0: Yeah, it's the sort of thing that each premise sounds very convincing, but then the conclusion, I'm kind of squinting my eyes saying, well, that doesn't seem right. You know, it seems like there's something missing here. So yep. you want to say on the one hand... Miracles are very improbable. Everyone will probably grant that. And historians can't describe anything other than what probably happened. Therefore, historians can't talk about miracles. To me, it feels like a very slick way to avoid any kind of messy or hard questions. (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't sound... It doesn't feel... I'm not trying to accuse Er Ehrman of being disingenuous or anything, but it just feels like... He's just trying to avoid talking about it.
1: Yeah. Um, in my thesis, I, I, uh, I even get into technicalities in uh, refuting this objection of his. So here is an argument, a deductive argument that I put together. It's almost verbatim from what Ehrman's writings and works. Okay. So premise one says, historians try to establish what probably happened in the past. Premise two, miracles are least probable events. Conclusion, therefore, uh, historians cannot establish miracles as probable. Now, the reason I believe this is a deductive argument is because of that conclusion right there. Historians cannot, cannot establish miracles as probable. That is a categorical statement, okay? that That is not drawn from inductive research, and it is actually a philosophical truth claim. He did not arrive at this from induction. He arrived at this from, from a deductive argument. He may not realize this, and I'm not really sure if he even recognizes that uh, what he's putting out here is a deductive argument or can be framed as a deductive argument. So in my uh, thesis, I aim to disarm (laughs) his uh, argument here, his objection. So when we look at this as a deductive argument, we have to look at the truth and validity. So the truth has to do with the truth of each statement, Uh, the truth of premise one, the truth of premise two, and the truth of the conclusion. If premise one and two are true, then it follows necessarily that, conc- that the conclusion is true as well. Now, there is also what's called validity. Validity has to do with the way the deductive argument is framed. Now, I'm, I'm using a, an Aristotelian logic where we have affirmative statements versus negative statements. We're getting into a major term a minor term, middle term. And from what I can see, this argument is invalid. If it is invalid, you, even if every one of your statement is true, premise one, premise two, and the conclusion are all true, but if the the, the, the way it's put together is uh, messed up, <laughs> if it violates any of the categorical syllogism rules, guess what? The whole argument is invalid. There you go. Let's uh, unpack this step by step. If premise one, two, and then conclusion are, are all true and the frame is properly put together, then the argument is sound, okay? It goes through. It is a good argument. He is right with this conclusion. Namely, historians cannot establish miracles as probable. So in my thesis, I steel man... Ehrman's argument in a number of angles. But even with all of those, Steele Manning, his argument still comes out to be either invalid or unsound. Now, let's take a look at uh, premise one. Historians try to establish what probably happened in the past. Let me ask you this, uh, uh, Sean. uh, What do you think of that uh, statement? They try to establish what probably happened in the past. Do you think that's a true statement?
0: Yeah, it's it's it seems true to me.
1: Yeah, right? it is.
0: Uh, you you want to discern historical documents. Say for example, yeah. you're reading, I don't know, Pliny the Elder, and he's talking about Mount Vesuvius, and he's also talking about politics, and he's also talking about, I don't know, botany, and you're just like, you know what? I I want to I want to discern. What probably ha- I want to use this source to see what actually happened in the past, what pro- but I can't be sure. I can't be 100% sure. Or if right. you look at uh, Plutarch and his lives or Suetonius, you know, you have these different accounts of what happened, and so you're trying to figure out, well, what probably, I can't be 100% sure, but what probably happened. You know, It seems like a very reasonable, minimalist approach to historiography.
1: Now, in this particular statement, premise one, historians try to establish what probably happened in the past. Emerson also has this implicit uh, ingredient, if you will, that historians don't deal with theological claims. Now, I-, I want to capitalize on that one. And let me explain. In my attempt to refute the intrinsic improbability of the miracles, I'm actually granting that the theological matters are put aside. We're not even mixing any theology in this, in this whole argument We're probabilities of, of miracles. Whether God is involved with it or not, it doesn't matter. We, we put God aside. And so I am, I am actually capitalizing on that one. In my view, even if we put God aside, Ehrman's argument still does not go through because of the way he, he, uh, he put this argument together because of its invalidity and and unsoundness. So uh, yeah, you and I both agree that, uh, you know, premise one is true. And what about premise two miracles are least probable events. Now notice that earlier I said that airman is confusing rarity slash frequency with probability. Now, when you hear airman makes the statement, miracles are least probable events, he tends to mix rarity slash frequency with probability. When, When you analyze it, he's actually committing a number of fallacies there. Now, for example, in his writings, he would say in one breath, miracles are infinitesimally improbable. What does that mean? Does that mean miracles are impossible? Because he keeps using the word infinitesimally, right? Yeah.
0: Well, th- there's a big question of what, pro- how is he calculating his probability? What
1: is his yes. baseline?
0: I, I want to hear more about this calculation of the probability. What do you? How do you approach that?
1: I use a probability calculus called Bayes' theorem. Bayes' theorem is uh, put together by uh, Bay- uh, Thomas Bayes, who was a Presbyterian and a statistician back in the 1700s uh it's a calculus that he puts put together uh where he calculates the what's called posterior probability you know the the outcome when you put the claim a a theory the background you know you mentioned god being in the background the evidence and then a Bayes theorem also uh factors in the um evidence how evidence behaves if the resurrection didn't happen so he also factors in if the if the resurrection did happen so put them all together the posterior probability comes out to be high you know it all depends on the on the evidence you know if, if you have enough evidence and if those evidence are solid what is the likelihood that the that the evidence are there if the resurrection didn't happen it's really low. Wow! Now, uh, just pause for a second. Yeah, sure, sure. What's
0: the difference between uh, these two these two uh, terms you're using, the uh, posterior posterior probability and the, and the prior probability? Can you talk about that? Just explain that a little more.
1: Yeah the, the the prior probability is merely looking at the probability of a hypothesis. Merely looking at the background. Okay, so. For example the hypothesis of the resurrection of Jesus we look at the background of his life okay uh, Jesus existed you know he lived a religious life he claimed to be god's messenger etc etc that, that's the prior probability now the prior probability of the resurrection also has the background of god being there so when you factor god in guess what the prior probability goes up already and then you look into that's just the prior probability before looking at the evidence. And so you look at the evidence, right? And how they behave if the resurrection happened. Well, guess what? Put them together, you have posterior probability. It, it keeps going up. So the prior has the background only, the posterior has the background plus evidence. Okay. So that's the best way I, I could put it. You know, there are so many details uh, to be discussed and. <laughs> It kind of gets complicated a little bit too.
0: Yeah, well, I, I I don't think many of us are accustomed to thinking through that statement. Miracles are, you know, least probable events. Right. Uh, most of us are going to say, yeah, I, I guess so, because like normally they don't happen. Yes. Uh, but uh, you know, we're we're kind of then unwittingly admitting that, therefore the Gospels are wrong, you know, and uh, yeah, proper yeah, 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 history, yeah. as opposed to this uh, this religious history, uh, can't yeah. admit the the possibility of a miracle. Yeah. And what I hear you saying is that uh, this prior probability is, you know, all the information going up to the event, but not including the actual evidence for the event happening. Right. The posterior is adding that in. And, you know, I really appreciate your other point about how if the event didn't happen then you have to consider like well what do i do with all this evidence
1: exactly and and it's not <laughs> the minimal facts oh man it, it, if you have maximal facts that you know lydia and timagrew advance man it it keeps going up it, it 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 keeps getting stronger and stronger it's not just four facts it's not just six it's it's Lots and lots of evidence. If all those evidence are in place, man, what do you do with it? If Jesus didn't rise, then those evidence go down. The the probability of that, right, of that factor goes down, which is, do you want to really accept that? You know, are we being reasonable if we allow that to happen? I think we're being unreasonable if, if we let that happen. We can't let that happen because the evidence is so strong. Yeah.
0: I think it's just a modernist bias. There's just like an old hangover, enlightenment mindset that denigrates miracles as being not legitimate to the enterprise of history, right? I mean, it seems like just just an old presupposition hanging around that doesn't even belong.
1: Well, like I've uh, tried to explain earlier, we can even put God aside. Even then, we can still argue that the resurrection can, in principle, be established. Now I make it very clear. I think that in my thesis, I am not saying, I'm not saying that the evidence we have do in fact raise the probability. Okay, putting God aside, we're we're just looking at the evidence, right, for the resurrection. Do they in fact, in practice, give us a high posterior probability? Well, that's another discussion. Okay, I'm only saying in principle we can if we have enough evidence. Does that make sense? Yeah. Even without God in the picture, if we have lots and lots of evidence that's even acceptable by all the skeptics in the world, if we have enough, the question is, do we have enough? Well, probably not. That makes sense? Yeah. I want to let that sink in there, especially for our viewers.
0: Yeah. So what you're saying is that you're not assuming God's existence going in?
1: Right. I'm even just putting that aside. The prior probability doesn't even have God in there. The prior probability is way down. It's not, it's not zero, because zero is impossible. It has a positive, non-zero prior probability. It's very, very low, right? Because God is not in the picture. Even then, in principle, we can still raise the posterior probability later on, if we have lots and lots of evidence. That's just in principle. That's just mathematical principle. That's yeah. all I'm trying to say here in, in my refutation of uh, Bart Ehrman's second objection.
0: Yeah, I see uh, you also have this elaborate equation. Yes. Could you talk about that a little bit? Because I think a lot of people would be just sort of surprised to know that in the course of doing apologetics or history, you have an equation that could be of any use. Would you be willing to talk about that a little bit and what that equation can help you get at as far as conclusions?
1: Yeah. uh, Okay, this is the page... 52 of my thesis, so you have the probability of the resurrection, R, given our background information, plus the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, equals this calculus right here. So you have this term right here is similar to this one right here. They're exactly similar,
0: So just for the audio listeners, the numerator uh, and the denominator are the same, but there's an an additional term in the denominator.
1: Right. You add another term.
0: Of the probability of it not happening, given the background information.
1: That's correct. Yeah, yeah. So posterior probability writer equals, so this one is the probability of the reaction on background information only multiplied by the probability of the evidence for the resurrection given the background and the resurrection happening or occurring okay over the same thing plus the probability of the non-occurrence of the resurrection given the background multiplied by the probability of the evidence for the resurrection given the background plus you know and the non-occurrence of the resurrection so uh, it's very very difficult to put numbers, an actual mathematical <laughs> yeah, numbers.
0: Yeah, That's. I'm, I'm dying to see what y- numbers you assign to these values.
1: Yeah, uh, here I explain right the posterior probability of the occurrence of R. It tells how probable the resurrection is given the value of the prior, the uh, explanatory, the uh, uh, the prior uh, of the non-resurrection and the explanatory. Of the resurrection given that the resurrection didn't happen
0: well let's let's jump down to the numbers because you you do uh throw some numbers in there on the next page yeah there we go okay so um, explain that a little bit you said yeah the, uh the probability of the resurrection see. based on the background information is 0.00001 <laughs>
1: yeah 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 so all i'm trying to say here is i'm i'm already granting that it's very very low but it's not zero because when you say zero, it's it's impossible. For as long as you put a, a one in there, zero zero, zero 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 one, that's positive right there. That's not zero. It still has a positive value, okay? No matter how low that is, guess what? If this right here, the probability of the evidence given background and the occurrence of the resurrection is equal to. and this one right here is 0.00005. guess what? It would yield a
0: Uh, 0.6666. 0.66. Yeah. 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 0.6666. So that's a 66% chance or 67% chance that it happened.
1: That's correct. So my point being here is no matter how low the prior probability, if you have evidence that, are strong enough. Guess what? You can have 66 percent probability, posterior probability, right here.
0: And and do you think a historian would be satisfied with that kind of a number, or what do they what do they want?
1: It depends on the historian. They usually don't put numbers in their levels of certainty or uncertainty. In my thesis, I discussed uh, a system put together by a fellow named C. B. Han McCullough, a scientist. Regularly utilize numerical expressions in determining probabilities. Historians regularly express grades of certainty as estimates in terms of quality rather than quantity, ranging from highly improbable through highly probable. Now, this is written by C.B. Han McCullough, who is a, a philosophy of history. According to him, these grade estimates, although possessing an element of subjectivity and arbitrariness, are generally based upon some acquaintance with actual frequencies. The grades they historians use, like the grades given for students' essays, can often be related to range of numbers. So McCullough suggests that for most people, the equivalence to the grades of certainty would roughly be what follows. So extremely probable would be 100 to 95%, very probable would be 95 to 80, you know, going down. Let's see here. I hope I, did I answer that question or? or? Yeah,
0: no, you did. Uh, what I see you saying, the big takeaway for me on this right. equation business and the whole question of probability is yeah. uh, that the historian cannot say that yes. the resurrection's probability, based on background information alone, tells you whether or not the historian has to do business with it. You also have to factor in the probability of the evidence for the resurrection, not just the background. Amen,
1: amen, and amen.
0: That's what I'm getting from you. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yes, yes. Okay, so. It's as simple as that. Update our syllogism, please. In uh, premise one, it, it, it is a positive statement, right? Historians try to establish what probably happened. That's a positive statement. You see it? Then uh, premise two, miracles are least probable events. That's also a positive statement. Conclusion, therefore, historians cannot. Well, guess what? You cannot draw a negative conclusion from two positive premises. It's invalid because the conclusion is is a stronger premise. This is called the fallacy of weaker premise.
0: Okay. So even if the premises were true, the argument... Is an invalid argument, so it doesn't even matter. It, doesn't it just even matter, doesn't follow. Yeah. It's a non sequitur. And That's right. If you were to correct it, how would you fix it?
1: I try to salvage this argument. Right here is what I did, because you have to put a negative statement there in in you know or negativity in either premise one or premise two. So here is what I did. I, I changed premise one to say historians cannot establish least probable events as probable okay that's a negative statement premise 2 remains the same miracles are least probable events therefore historians cannot establish miracles as probable well now we have a valid argument because that negative in the in the conclusion cannot establish is warranted by premise 1 the, the new premise namely historians cannot Establish least probable events as probable. So this is a valid argument right here. But is it sound? But is it sound? Amen. <laughs> question. <laughs> no, it's not. Why? Because number one, there is a smuggling business happening here. The idea that historians cannot establish miracles is already smuggled in premise one. It begs the question. So it's arguing in circle.
0: So you're saying it's guilty of uh, circular reasoning? Yes. All right, so let me see if I can re-say this back to you. The standard Erman argument against miracles is that since historians can only do what's probable, and miracles by definition are improbable, therefore historians can't and shouldn't properly do any business with miracles. That the problem with that is that, first of all, that's an invalid argument. And then if you try to fix it to make it a valid, valid. argument... Then it becomes an unsound argument, because you have to use right. circular reasoning to fix yes. the whole thing. Yeah. So very good. Really, what we have here is rhetoric, not logic. Right? We have yeah. something that is persuasive and sounds good and convinces people, but right, it's right. logically fallacious. As a result, you, know, it's, it's like uh, kicking a leg out of a, a stool. The whole stool is going to tip over. Because now that it doesn't have this logical leg to stand on, the historian has to come back to it and say, oh, I guess I do need to do business with the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And that's really your goal here is to say, hey, look, Mr. Historian or Mrs. Historian, you can't ignore these facts. And I say, oh, well, yeah, yes, we can't ignore them because they're improbable. And you're taking away that. From them, So now you're holding their feet to their fire saying, no, you really do have to look at this evidence.
1: You know, it seems to me that uh, Ehrman is the only one, well, from what I've read, he's the only one that's making this argument.
0: Yes, but he's got so many disciples, right? W- wouldn't you think there are so many, maybe not professionals, but online debaters, uh, <laughs> Muslim yeah, apologists, yeah. Uh, atheist uh, yeah. websites that are, that are citing Ehrman left and right using these ways of thinking.
1: Yeah. And you know, uh, I want to say this. Um, a number of uh, biblical Unitarians have been pointing this out, not to mention uh, Dr. Dale Tuggy and uh, Josiah uh, from uh, Syndicate uh, Integrity Syndicate. Uh, they've been putting out that even biblical Unitarians are affected by this sentiment of anti-intellectualism. <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're either too scared or we're too pure to be, you know, getting involved with logic and reasoning. And some of that, I think, is just laziness. Uh, maybe it's a combination of that and being spiritual. If you don't get into logic, you're you're somehow super spiritual. I think we need to get away from that. I, I think we need to uh, squash this anti-intellectual tendency amongst us, you know. We 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 get it from uh, other Christians, you know, uh, even among Trinitarians, It's it's yeah. it's everywhere, yeah. You know, and even oneness people. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty. It's pretty common. I, I think there's a fear there.
1: There's also a fear, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think there's a fear that if we don't fight against intellectualism, that we'll just intellectualize our faith, and maybe we'll we'll lose people that'll say, "Oh, I'm not smart enough to understand this." Equa- you know, this equation that you just showed us, I you know, I come from a math background. It didn't look hard to me. You know, you just really? have like two numbers in the top and then I have four- a news
1: for you though. <laughs> I hate math. Okay. I'm okay. bad with math. <laughs>
0: but my my point is if somebody's coming from your perspective of hating math or disliking logic. Oh yeah,
1: automatically. Oh man, I can't I can't deal with that. I, they're my mind feeling is alienated
0: and excluded. Like uh well right. if 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 My faith requires an intellectualism that's of a level that's beyond me that I feel like I'm not valid in my own faith. And uh, that's, that's not what you're saying, though. What you're saying is, look, just because you don't understand it doesn't mean that those who do understand it, those who are capable of it, shouldn't be allowed to explore there as well. Uh, is that correct or how how do how would you respond to somebody that's like oh well, I'm worried about Aaron because he's 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 getting so nerdy about these subjects and uh you know if he continues down this path he's going to be people will will be turned off to Christianity or they will be or they'll think he's just too too prideful you know to 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 make it so academic you know what do you think about that
1: well i would say that it may not be your place to get into the nitty gritty of nerdiness, but in my case, it's my calling to, I, I just have this responsibility placed by God to provide uh, an answer, a, a good answer to nerdy skeptics out there. We have to have people in place. Uh, if, if that's not your place, I respect that. But please stop saying, you know, it's of the devil. It's a human logic, you know, you're. No, it's not. God created us with the ability to reason, to to use logic. <laughs> when we come to the Bible, logic is already in place. Our understanding of language is already in place. And then we look at the Bible. You know, we already have this moral intuition inside of us. And then we look at the Bible. We don't just look, we don't read the Bible and then, "Oh, yeah, logic is uh true and, you know, morality, you know, is from God, no. We already have it in inside of us, and so we have to recognize that. Part and parcel of uh, of a uh, an, an apologist is to ground your religious epistemology, and then build it, and then develop it over time. And when you ground your, when I say religious epistemology, I mean, you know, religious belief and knowledge, that's what I meant. That's, that's all I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not trying to use any fancy words.
0: Or even your belief that logic itself is valid.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How do you know that, right?
0: Well, I think you need a presupposition, don't you? Uh, and so this is an area where naturalism really fails. And I think we'll probably talk more about this next time. But on naturalism, yeah. you, you know, you can't use logic to prove logic is valid. Uh, right. Because you, you have to start somewhere, like the law of non-contradiction. You know, that's that's right. like ground zero. Uh, but like, how do you prove the law of non-contradiction without using the law of non-contradiction? Uh, it's, yeah, it's, you can't. Yeah, so you, you need an, an epistemic presupposition. And if you have good yeah. evidence for God's existence and that God is also rational... Then right. you can you can make a, st- a starting point on all this. Yeah. 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 I appreciate what you're saying there. But we, we really do need to wrap it up for today. Sure. Maybe you could just offer some concluding remarks on this. This this other topic of uh anti-intellectualism is really important. We should talk more about it, but uh we're running out of time for today.
1: I appreciate you allowing me to share my thoughts about my thesis. And uh I hope I didn't get anybody confused here. And if I did, uh you can always email me or You know, maybe we can talk about it, you know, in our next meeting or... Yeah, looking forward to our next meeting, Sean. And uh, again, thank you so much.
0: All right, Aaron. Well, thanks for being on the show today. And uh, I think uh, you definitely gave people some things to think about. And uh, some people may be wanting to dig in and do the the hard work of sorting through your P's and B's and E's and R's to... (laughs) Really understand that equation, and uh, you know you're not the only one doing this either. I've seen William Lane Craig establishing some some probability calculus in his apologetics work, and uh, you know there is a place for it. So, um, thank you so much for your diligent effort and your time today as well.
1: Right. Thanks.
0: Well, that brings this conversation to a close. Of course, we've got a part three lined up for you next week on another objection to the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. So you have to stay tuned for that. As for this episode, 445, if you'd like to ask any questions or leave any remarks, you have to go over to restitutio.org and find Resurrection Objection 2, Improbable Miracles, question mark, and leave your feedback there. But well, this time, I'd like to read out a comment made by Steve on Facebook. Uh, we've been having a back and forth. He's been arguing for the pre existence of Christ on the basis of a particular Greek word, ex apostelo, which just means uh, to send out or send forth. And uh, so I looked up that word in the BDAG, the Bauer, Danker, Art, and Gingrich Greek lexicon, and pointed out that this word does not have any special meaning of intimacy or it doesn't contain any information about where someone was located prior to where they when they were sent out, and that it just means to send out, just like apostello means, And he has been quoting, and I don't know if Steve's actually listening to this, I I hope he is. Steve has been quoting from the Strong's Greek lexicon, as well as the pulpit commentary. This is something that is problematic when it comes to making arguments using Greek vocabulary, especially. Because what we understand the Greek language to mean and how it works radically changed in the 20th century. And this is something I cover in my class on how we got the Bible, uh, where I talk about the discovery of several caches of manuscripts. Actually, for that class, to talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, but also this huge event in the late 1800s, which wasn't published until the 20th century, in Oxyrhynchus, Egypt, where they came across just thousands of Koine Greek documents that were written in the same style of Greek that the New Testament was written in. And prior to that, you had some sources that believed that the New Testament, this Koine, was some sort of Holy Ghost Greek. And every little prefix and every little vocabulary distinction must have great significance And this infiltrated into a lot of scholarly and theological works of the period until Oxyrhynchus and several other discoveries in the 20th century, late 19th and 20th centuries, really gave us a much better understanding of the kind of Greek that the New Testament was written in, which we call Koine Greek, which is street Greek. It's common Greek. It's the kind of Greek that you hear down on the corner in a big city, anywhere in the Roman Empire we shouldn't expect the kind of little minute differences like one prefix or two prefixes to always have some huge theological significance. Uh, now, that's not to say that there can't be clear truths communicated using a prefix or a suffix or two words that have slight nuances of meaning, but that is going to have to be up to the burden of of the person that's making that case. You can't just assume that and then split hairs to figure out, oh, well, this particular word means this, and this word means that, even though they really are used interchangeably, not just in the New Testament either, but also looking at the Old Testament, which was written in Koine Greek, translated into Koine Greek, excuse me, the Septuagint, and also lots of parallel contemporary literature. Again, The New Testament was not written in a special Holy Ghost language. The New Testament was written in the street language of Greek. And because of that, we have lots of other literature from the period that we can compare to. And we can see that Koine Greek is similar to classical Greek with a few differences. You know, it's a little simplified. They don't you don't have the optative mood as much. They tended to multiply prefixes for Koine Greek, because presumably words were losing their value, and you needed to amp up the language, and so you needed to say things in a stronger way to make the same kind of impact. So all this to say that you really need to be careful, and I, and those of you who have listened to many Rest Studio podcasts know that I don't make a big deal out of the definition of one particular Greek word. I never build a case on Uh, limiting the semantic domain of a Greek word or Hebrew word to one specialized meaning and then building a theology on that. It's just not a reliable method for determining doctrine. Look, if the doctrine is true, we, we don't need to squint our eyes and look at one Greek word in just the right way in order to get that. Now, I understand that the pulpit commentary says that, but the pulpit commentary is an old, outdated commentary, as are almost all the freebie resources that are out there. Sadly. So we really do have to be careful. If you're looking at Matthew Henry, if you're looking at Jameson Fawcett and Brown, if you're looking at John Wesley's notes or John Calvin's notes or the pulpit commentary, these are completely outdated commentaries. That doesn't mean they don't have any value, but it does mean that when it comes to grammar, when it comes to textual criticism, when it comes to parallel studies, contextual studies from the ancient Near East or from the Greco-Roman world or Second Temple Judaism, that Tons of work in all these fields has been done in the last hundred years, and it's just its just not a good idea to build your case on those kinds of sources. Uh, so what would I recommend? Well, I'm a huge fan of the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary. It's not too expensive, and it gives you all the background info for the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not really commenting on Scripture directly as much as giving you relevant historical and cultural parallels that help us to compare and contrast scripture to what people around that time and that place were saying and thinking. Uh, I also use the uh, new international commentary series, NICOT, N-I-C-N-T, and I found that to be generally pretty, pretty good. Uh, and then you have other commentaries that are a little more liberal, the word biblical commentary, definitely taking a progressive approach to things in most places, so you got to be careful about that. And then you have the Baker exegetical commentary of the New Testament and on and on and on. Uh, I've got, honestly, a lot of commentaries at this point in my life. I've been collecting them for a long time. Uh, but the point is, we have to be careful using these sources from... I'm trying to think of how do I, how do I come across this without sounding like a snob. Here's my point. Be careful of old biblical reference resources. Simple as that. And as time goes on, we're able to get more and more access to good resources for free, and, uh, but still, most of them do require that you pay for them. And I just wanted to mention one other <laughs> commentary while I'm just rattling through them is the NIGTC, which I do really love. It's a very nitty-gritty commentary kind of similar to the UBS Translators Handbooks SIL Exegetical Summary Series but even better in my opinion and that's a commentary that really focuses on the Greek and would really be helpful for anyone doing New Testament doing work on the New Testament and has familiarity with the Greek that's a new international Greek Testament commentary so anyhow some recommendations there for all of you researchers looking to get to and use reliable resources. Uh, maybe I'll do an episode more fleshing this out, but I just wanted to mention this in light of my recent dialogues with Steve, who's putting forward this idea that this uh, particular word has this particular meaning that sets it apart, even though, as Troy Salinger pointed out, the same word is used in a non-specialized way in the Septuagint and in other sources. So hopefully that will be beneficial to all of you. Thanks, everyone, for Tuning in, if you'd like to support Restitudio, you could do that at our website restitudio.org. We'll see you next time and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.